Welcome, everybody, and hello to the Tech Trends Podcast. Uh, I am your host, Stephen Lamarca, AMT's technology analyst, and I'm here with... I am Benjamin Moses, the director of technology. Hello, and Steve. we're here to talk about all of the uh, manufacturing technology news. This is our least smooth intro to date <laughs> because Ben just dropped it on me that he wants me to do it. But... Uh, Ben, what do you want to talk about before we get into articles? Tell I me had, about your banter. Yeah, absolutely. I had a great trip uh, a week ago. Went to Rochester, which is always fun this time of the year. A little cold, but, you know, Rochester hasn't turned fall season yet. It's It felt strange being up there this this uh, this late in the season and still a lot of greenery. You know, some would say that's where some of, uh, some of the industry's greats are born and raised. That's what I hear. Or at least have lived there. <laughs> uh, we had a committee meeting there. We... Um, uh, the company that hosted us was Gleason, uh, the Gleason Works. They do uh, gear manufacturing equipment. So they're on the committee and they're also a member of AMT. And we had a, a very interesting discussion in the committee, but also we had a tour of uh, yes. their facility, which is massive. So they've been, the Gleason Works has been around for a really long time. Mm-hmm. They've gone public, private. Um, I think right now they're privately held, uh, but they've been in that Rochester area for a very long time and within that building for a very long time also. And is when, this your first time? I have not been to a gear manufacturing facility, but has this been your first tour of a gear manufacturing facility? Correct. This is the first time in a true gear manufacturing. Was it like a traditional manufacturing facility or was it more like a lab? Uh, so they do manufacture the equipment there, right? So they are okay. assembling their um, their uh, the gear manufacturing on site there. So they're doing some assembly. They're doing all the controls there um, on site. So they're doing and design and development of new manufacturing equipment. Sure. So they, um, uh, you know, doing prototype testing. So it's it's manufacturing mm-hmm. and R and D facility. Right. So they do a lot in 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 their facility there. So it's fantastic to see in their research and development facility. I would imagine they're using their own equipment. They're like Correct. testing their equipment. Correct. Correct. And I I know you're about to get into this, but <laughs> gear manufacturing is is the one of the craziest sciences. It's the most scientific thing in manufacturing, I think. Even more than I think uh, you know, additive or <laughs> generative design, you know, every time and I I realize I sound like a broken record, but every time I open up like a gear manufacturing magazine, uh I don't remember what it's called, but there is one in this industry. Every time I open it up, it's like flipping through a textbook. There's right. formulas everywhere. <laughs> and I just imagine in an actual gear grinding facility or gear generation facility, yep. it's it's got to be like a lab. Well, absolutely. So the so there's two sides of it, right? So there's complexity of gears themselves, mm-hmm. right? And you've rightly mentioned that a lot of the gear manufacturers, they go, and those magazines go very in-depth of the technical side they of it. They go really in-depth. So the shape of the teeth, uh, how many teeth need to be engaged, all those are very, very complex. The beveling of the like right. the teeth, like like just for like, you know, beveling usually is just used to make things look pretty. Right. But in the case of gears, it's for like stress relief. Right. And it's interesting if you look at it as a flat plane. So just a cross section on a sheet of paper, you mm-hmm. have a profile. But also some of these are curved going into the page itself. Right. So you added right. the, the three dimensional effect of, um, you know, the curvature that they want to incorporate in the gear. So is that the beveling? No, it's the you know profile along the axis. Okay. So it's got a twist to it. So it's, I'm sure there's a gear term for it. Uh, I'll look it up in the magazine later. <laughs> but the, you know, the interesting thing that I saw was, you know, the complexity was reflected in one of the new machines that they're showing where it, on the controller, it was showing you the path of the um, the cutter along mm-hmm. the uh, the channel. So it's showing you how deep it was cutting into it. And it showed the kind of profile and 
where it was and where they are on we'll call it closed loop manufacturing also yeah so not only are they cutting very complex shapes on the 2d profile but they're extending and adding twist to it along the access to it right but also they've done a significant amount of work to get to closed loop manufacturing so they know where the profile is as they're uh, in cut or after cut so it's very wow. fascinating that if they're not only just cutting material but they're extending their capabilities so they can produce very very precise uh gears that are basically good right off the machine absolutely and some of the trends that uh we talked about in the committee so seeing that facility is massive right so they're making um cnc gear manufacturing equipment there so you know they have and then they're testing and they're doing custom automation also so they're in, um building in being able to uh, uh, handle material uh, sure. loading and unloading uh, and also process post-processing. So if they have to clean the part or anything like that, um, gear grinding to achieve the surface finishes, they also set up for that. Um, but there are two topics that came up um, in terms of trends for um, gears themselves. And I thought it was very fascinating because it's uh, consumer driven. One is um, uh, EVs, electric vehicles, the impact of gears on EVs. One the common argument is the number of gears going from internal combustion to EVs, right? which is fair. But there's two trends that came out in that um, the gear designers and manufacturers are being driven to reduce noise of gears because EVs basically have very low noise. Yeah. And one of the um, noise generators in within an EV vehicle is the gear, the gear right. meshing. Right. So on the design side, they're constantly being driven to reduce the noise, which is fascinating to me. But also on the other side is generally the gears are being pushed in one direction. Mm -hmm. So when you're designing it, you have loading on one side of the tooth or your sickle, your fatigue is uh, non-reversing. So you go one direction back to zero. You don't go all the way to the opposite direction. But with EVs and regenerative braking, now you're pushing on the back side of the tooth. Now you're pushing from one side all the way to the other side. So you have even higher uh, fatigue loads. Right. So it's very interesting uh, kind of design process going forward where I think the uh, you know industry is going to see a bit of a shift on you know both the design of the gears but also the material that they're selecting and how they're manufactured yeah I think it's really fascinating because um, you know I, I remember looking into this when I was fiddling and spending too much money on buying parts for my car <laughs> um, you know like race car transmissions have straight cut gears, right. which are stronger, but they make the reason why they're not used in, in cars that people drive on a regular basis, because you'd think, why wouldn't you want to go with like a stronger gear all the time? Right. Just like you said, they're noisier. Right. And it's, it's, I never thought that with EVs that they need to make those gears even quieter right. than they were before. But I feel like, you know, with the, with the pop rise in popularity of the automatic transmission, mm -hmm. You know, I don't mean to throw a little bit of shade, but I feel like it's made gear manufacturers, gear grinders, uh, it's made them go a little soft oh. because, you know, you also got to consider that the automatic transmission, like, like when you talk about regenerative braking, sure. there's always been forces applied to both sides of the tooth in a transmission, at least with a manual transmission. Engine braking is a big deal. It's sure. a big deal in motorcycles for sure. Right. Because they're all manuals. Right. You know, there, there's no automatic trans. There's no slush box. Right. In a uh, motorcycle or at least available for a motorcycle. And now we're getting back to the point where, you know, th these these transmission manufacturers were making, you know, 18 speed transmissions for, you know, 
the most recent uh, Econo box. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a slush box. And yeah, they they don't care about engine braking and stuff like that, because uh, when you want to slow down, why waste all of that, you know, kinetic energy? If you want to waste the kinetic energy, send it to the brakes. Yep. But uh, you just reduce the pressure and the torque converter and then there's no uh, um, stress being put on the gear. Sure. So now we're coming back to that. So my takeaway is you're still not a fan of the automatic transmission. <laughs> you'll, okay. st- you'll still want a manual transmission for the rest of your life. No. That's, okay. No, I I, I will. I, I, I get that. I totally feel what you're <laughs> picking up. But I will take an automatic transmission before I go with a CVT. Okay. That's fair. I want to keep that's those fair. gear manufacturers in business. CVTs are not good. I feel so bad for people that own a car with a CVT. I really like Toyota's CVT. Sure. That has a physical first gear. Right. Because the hardest part of launching a car, well, starting from zero is the launch. Right. It's the most right. strenuous part. And CVTs don't do it very well. Right. Um, so they solved it by just putting in a first gear. They put in a first gear. That's cool. And then you'll get a shift to the CVT. Yeah. And then the transmission lasts forever. Nice. First gear is uh, theoretically your strongest gear in the transmission. It has the most torque. Sure. It has to put up with the most abuse. Right. And then you have the CVT after that. You're golden. Toyota was genius. It was like, yeah, it's a two speed. One thing I found very interesting and I'll transition to the next topic is as um, Craig was walking through, us through the facility, they had a couple of nozzles and like a uh, fluid. Um, conveyance parts within their machine and um you know in the cutting area cutting area and uh that was the first application where i where i saw where they had additively grown parts in production so they had these nozzles that they grew i think they were metallic um and they were actually using them in their certain machine so i thought that was fascinating you know they've come a long way yeah yeah (laughs) it's, it's come a real long way and so the article i've got uh, the first one to kick it off is about uh, additive applications. Cool. Um, this is from 3D Natives, and they actually have a series uh, about five different videos in this article. And of course, they cover some, you know, pop culture stuff like um, Squid Games. They mm-hmm. have how to th- mm-hmm. print 3D masks, which I glossed over. I'm not. It was a fun. It's fine. I mean, it's cool if you want to print your <laughs> Halloween costume instead yeah. of buying it. Halloween's I right the corner. It. Yeah. So the first one I wanted to uh, bring up from the article was um, Porsche. They're doing a lot on 3D printing and advanced manufacturing in general. They're, sure. I'd say they push the envelope pretty hard uh, as a large conglomerate of automotive stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they, what they're, the, uh, the video what they're talking about is 3D printing uh, parts and uh, customized uh, components within the cabin. And yeah, you could say, yeah, everyone's experimenting with mass customization. But in the article they talk about in Porsche wants to launch in February next year, February of 22. It will be a standard option for um, customized seats to be designed based on the user. And they'll grow the seat per user, basically. And they'll also allow uh, other upholstery items to be uh, customized to however the user wants. So I thought that was a fairly big... Now, to be fair, it's probably, you know, $125,000 car base. And then you're probably going to be around $200,000 car. That sounds like a (laughs) $20,000 seat option. (laughs) But the ability to say... I've got a seat made just for me. And I thought that was very fascinating. I mean, they, the video shows a variety of options of different seats, materials, and of course the form based on the individual driver. So yeah. I, I, I mean, the, was really the, cool. the concept of a bespoke seat for the owner slash driver of a vehicle is nothing new. Right. I mean, they've been doing that since like, you know, the supercars of the eighties and nineties right. where, 
uh, you know, in in a way not to save money, but to save weight. Yep. You know, those ratcheting mechanisms, those <laughs> manual seat moving mechanisms to move your seat forward or right. backward, you know, as, as as convenient as they are. And they're relatively simple and they've been making them forever. Right. You know, they're not as. They're com- they, they are slightly complex. They yeah. add weight to the car. Right. Um, they're not as complex as an electric motor. But, you know, to say in the in the. Uh, the desire to save weight for a performance aspect, you know, a lot of those manufacturers like Ferrari, just like, let's measure you up, yep. sit in the car. Here's like, you know, a mock-up seat that's not right. bolted down. And okay, this is the perfect set for you. If you're lucky, they'll adjust the pedals too. <laughs> right. Um, and then they bolt the seat down. I think the yep. most recent Ford GT, the seat is actually stationary, right. but the pedals can move. Yep. You can adjust yep. the steering wheel, maybe, maybe, but you can definitely adjust the pedals, Yep. which is really cool. It's on like the slider, right? The pedal box is on like a slider, which is really, really cool. But I like it's it's very traditional. I, right, I like right. the old school race car, hypercar, supercar tech. And that's like, nope, there's no adjustment to this. Like <laughs> when you watch um, uh, Le Mans race car drivers, right? Um, you know, in, in, in that endurance racing, you have multiple drivers per car. You have right. three drivers per car and the seat doesn't move. It's Correct. not an adjustable seat, but all the drivers have different bodies. Right. I mean, they're all really small <laughs> and, and fit individuals, but they are different. The you seat know, they has all, to fit well for car you know, safety. They, the seat has to fit well. And they actually, you'll watch when when a driver leaves, yep. they, they hop out of the car and it's they have to do a little bit of contortionist work to get out of the car. <laughs> Um, but then they reach back behind them to remove their their drinks bottle, their right. water bottle and their seat insert, yep. which I think in racing, those are actually 3D printed. Could be. But yeah. um, so they used to have their insert, but they do it, have yeah. an insert. Yeah. So this is this is cool. This is trickle down race tech. And <laughs> we're using we're also sprinkling in a little bit of, uh, you know, English Savile Row <laughs> customization for the rich owner. We'll see how this turns out. Hopefully we'll see some. uh videos of how this turns out i just can't wait to know how expensive it is (laughs) (laughs) um the last uh video that i saw from here was um there's an expert from um total energy Mm -hmm. uh, they're head of their manufacturing uh edgewick rivalry total like the the european and and uh like the gas company yeah the 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 petrol company the the energy company okay that total Uh, yep uh so not wine and more (laughs) massive company uh, and they're talking about some of their additive applications, uh, and they have a um, first 3D printed water bushing that they're using in the North Sea. And this is a fairly critical wow. element in their uh, pipelines for uh, safety, so it helps uh, maintain pressure and redirect the pressure back into the uh, uh, the drill head. So I thought it was a very fascinating look that you know uh, you know oil and gas uh, is you know massive uh, facilities, mm-hmm. and you know the ability for them to apply these interesting applications. You know, not just at the drill head. I've seen some very interesting applications at the drill head where they're using additive for, you know, f- flowing fluid and keeping that uh, area cool and excavation of um, the, the cut material, but also for safety on the on the top side. So I thought it was a very interesting application that, uh, you know, both these guys are looking at very different parts of, mm-hmm. you know, the world of um, applications, but very interesting and, you know, shows a different future for tomorrow, I think. Right. Right. Another application that's showing a different future for tomorrow yep. is uh, additive in housing. That's right. And it's starting to blow up like like it's I mean, it's been blowing up. <laughs> I've been talking about this for like a year now. Right. Um, but uh, Axios, um, which is just a website, but they released an article, 3D printed houses poised to go mainstream. Yep. And 
they're not kidding. Like, I mean, I I knew it was getting getting traction right. and they were building popularity, but I didn't think it was anywhere near like mainstream yet. Yeah. And yep. then Axios, like a good uh, news article, they uh, they actually have all this evidence <laughs> that, and they say these are all of the companies that are making three additive houses, 3D right. printed houses. And this is where all of these companies are working. And this is how many neighborhoods there are mm-hmm. that have additive houses. Yep. And I knew about the one in Austin, Texas. Right. There was, right. you know, I, I'm not going to mention the company name, um, but uh, because they didn't want to talk to us. <laughs> I'm not going to say why. There's been a few speculations, but, you know, I, it, I wish we got to get them on camera because it's really cool. I think additive houses are cool. Yeah. We actually snuck into one, not I'm not going to say compound, uh, but uh, we went to this like um, tiny house neighborhood. Okay. And there was like a community center yep. naturally. And it was a tiny community center, but uh, it was actually a 3D printed house. Oh, fascinating. Um, we, we tracked an article um, online and found out where it was. We did also track we, uh, somewhere on East 17th Street in Austin, Texas, in that neighborhood. And it's yep. not a very big street might be 13th street, but, um, I, 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 you can Google it, um, somewhere on East 17th street on that short street in Austin, Texas, there are somewhere four 3d printed houses. Nice. And we actually tried to go see them, sure. even though the company that built them didn't want to talk to us. <laughs> um, we were trying to sneak in, yeah. you know, knock on a door, sure. talk to the homeowner, be like, can you show us the first floor? Because it's only the first floor of the house that's right. additive manufactured. Sure. But um, that's it's still really cool. And and like I said, we got to see the one uh, tiny house community center right. that was made. And, you know, it was fully furnished. Yeah. Um, we didn't get to go inside, but we looked through. We totally creeped through the window. Yeah. Uh, it looked really cool and it was built solid. And I tell you what, I, I think I, if I haven't mentioned this before. Um, the way a lot of houses are being built today mm-hmm. because there's a huge material shortage, like for like lumber and right. stuff like this, you're seeing like a lot of houses being constructed using like particle board and sure. MDF sure. instead of like straight up sheets of lumber. Right. And to me, somebody that absolutely does not have enough money to buy a house, <laughs> um, especially in this area, like I don't, if I do end up like putting you know, my life on the line <laughs> and, you know, the birthright of my firstborn yep. to buy a house someday. I don't want it to be made out of particle board That's or right. MDF. Yeah. I'm totally down with additive concrete. <laughs> I would love to buy a 3D printed house as my first house. Can I go over some of these uh, facts that they went over? Yes. So one of the interesting things that they talk about. So if we look at the hype cycle, you know, I think we're past um, some of the uh misinformation not a misinformation but the overall hype of hey this is a cool idea we're starting to see a little more traction towards that and right. one evidence is you know startups are getting more money mm-hmm. right obviously startup can uh be propped up and then fail at some point they're they're startups for a reason but you know as the companies get more money then that shows a little more positive direction they're getting business yeah and people are interested in what they're doing so one company raised 207 million dollars in their last round which is that's no joke for yeah. producing houses and uh, connected with that, uh, there's a San Francisco company that's pushing more carbon neutral construction. Right. So there's been a huge discussion, obviously, related to uh, positively affecting the environment. And construction is not the best uh, industry in terms of 
you know, uh, producing, uh, minimize their waste right. and their, uh, the, the carbon footprint. Um, that's one thing I was very interested in seeing, uh, you know, when they're building my house in terms of, I went to this construction site a few times and for the most part, they did a lot of stuff offsite and then brought in like the uh, structure and then they assembled there. But if you look at all the waste that goes on after that, it's just tons and tons and tons of waste, even in just the framework of the, the yeah. base construction of the house where, you know, you could theoretically just build it somewhere else, minimize that waste. And I mean, how know, many of those big dumpster loads that tons, you guys have to tons? Uh, so that, I thought that was very interesting. And also, and then on top of that, like you have all the neighbors that will throw stuff into the dumpster <laughs> yeah. too. It's like, you know, yeah. I'm paying for this. <laughs> Thank you. There's so many co- uh, community emails about not doing that. I can't imagine. Uh, being an HOA is not fun. <laughs> yeah. Don't well, you buy a house to get, <laughs> I, I, I thought you bought a house to yeah. get out of paying rent. So the other, <laughs> are, uh, the last point that I'll talk about is uh, they have a, a small community in Palm Springs, a 15 unit neighbor. Yes. Which I is cool. It's 15 15's units. a lot. But they were talking about how they included solar panels and batteries and, you know, cool. raising their uh, carbon neutrality even further, not just mm-hmm. in the construction, but, you know, in the out years of after they produce the house. So, you know, I mean, to be fair, you could build that in in yeah. the cost of a, a stick and uh, nail house. But sure. I thought it was very interesting that they're able to, you know, design the, these features into their right into their house also. And Palm Springs is a great place to implement solar or photovoltaic cells. Absolutely. Do I have to keep calling that? Can I call it solar panels? I'm not going to call it so- solar panels. <laughs> I will. Okay. Right. The next article I have is about a new factory, new facility. Now, I don't think they're a member yet, but maybe we can talk to them at some point, Steve. Amazon opens up a new robotics facility in Massachusetts. I haven't heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> So it's interesting. Amazon Robotics will continue to grow at engineering, manufacturing, support, and test teams in Massachusetts. Uh, so the article is from Robotics Tomorrow. Um, so they already have a site in North Reading, uh, and they're going to work with uh, both these facilities in Massachusetts. It's interesting. I'm surprised that they opened both of those facilities in Massachusetts, but I guess they're uh, modifying that. And they also have a fair amount of presence in Pittsburgh with their artificial intelligence and what um, is going on with Carnegie Mellon and uh, the um, AIM uh, uh, manufacturing USA Institute up there in uh, Pittsburgh also. Uh, but it's fairly interesting that, you know, they're investing a ton of money to in- open up the facility. And of course, Amazon purchased a bunch of robotics facilities. Obviously they have their own warehouse robots uh, and they're producing their own single arm robots and mm-hmm. they have a long way to go. And they're looking for, I would see a lot of uh, participation in that facility. So they're going to be doing a lot there, you know, uh, some R and D, some corporate facilities. And of course, um, uh, some engineering and manufacturing for their robot r- robot. So, and I'm sure they have a lot of other places that they're going to be opening up to to, uh, to build stuff too. Yeah, yeah, seeing a lot more of these type of facilities all across the U.S., which yeah. is great. Uh, you've got a uh, an article also about a manufacturing facility, but on a Another different scale. Another big company that you may or may not heard of, but you've definitely <laughs> used some of their products before. Yep. Uh, TSMC, a Taiwanese chip manufacturer. Yep. The chip making industry is huge. Yeah. We just went over these numbers. <laughs> the chip making the chip manufacturing industry is worth five hundred billion. Billion. That's a fair amount. You know, it's it's a fair amount. That's sure. you know, I do realize like the manufacturing industry in general, the global manufacturing industry, right. it's like some teen trillion, right? <laughs> right? Right. So I mean, this is a fraction of that, but it's still huge. I'm sure. not gonna scoff at five hundred billion. Um the uh, chip shortage, the global chip shortage of this past year uh, was a $100 billion hit mm-hmm. on a $500 billion industry. Yep. 20% of the entire industry 
lost right because of the chip shortage that's crazy to me um and but this company this taiwanese chip manufacturer tsmc is uh, investing did i say 12 or 13 percent 12 12 billion dollars they're spending 12 billion dollars to open a chip manufacturer a huge chip manufacturing facility in phoenix arizona that's cool of all of the things that manufacturing evangelicals have been trying to reshore back in the U.S. I never would have thought chip making would have made it back over here. Yeah. Batteries. Believable. Sure. Believable. There's a trend towards that. There's a lot of stuff being mined. It was a lot of crazy metals being mined up in Canada <laughs> that that China has been trying to steal. Sure. <laughs> steal, trying Borrow. to buy <laughs> for making batteries. Yep. And ba- so naturally there's been a lot of research done in batteries and batteries have been made in the U.S., and uh, are being made more in the U.S. and yep. they're using more material or they're discovering new materials uh, and designing new materials to make said batteries, right. which is making it more possible to make them anywhere you want. So yep. naturally, all the research is being done here. So why not build them here? Chip making, though. Right. You know, that's always been like a Southeast Asian thing. Right. Right. And now chip manufacturing Ta- Taiwan is bringing one of their heavy hitters. Yep. To the U.S. to make uh, 20,000 wafers a month. Yep. I don't know how many chips <laughs> comes off of a wafer, but I know there are multiple dyes that are that come from a wafer. And they plan to make 20,000 wafers a month. That is a huge clean room. <laughs> and one thing also to point out, right? So they're not doing, um, you know, uh, simple chips or, you know, a couple of generation old chips. They're doing current generation and future generation chips, right? Yeah. You mentioned they're doing five nanometer chips there. That's a yes, sum. Yes, yes. That's a sum up for future generations, right? So that's basically the current state of the art of what uh, the current, you know, CPUs are right uh, today. So I thought that was very, very interesting. Look, that you know they're going to spend twelve billion dollars to set up this amazing facility in Phoenix, which is a nice area, by the way. It is a nice there. area, and uh, you even know, even even the outskirts of Phoenix are really nice, like like Mesa. Yep, yep. I've been to Sedona. It's fantastic. Oh man, my family actually just uh, picked up a dog. Not my immediate family, sure. like my cousins. Yep. Just got some dog out in Sedona. That's cool. Some rare Italian breed. I don't know why. Of they course got, it is. To, to probably to sniff out truffles on their farm. <laughs> oh, now it all makes sense. <laughs> but it, it, this is a great step, I think, to, and it's not a short-term investment. If you're investing $12 billion in a facility, it's going to be a long-term investment. So it's not just yeah. a quick impact, a quick shift for uh, fulfilling like six months worth of inventory or something like that. It's the future of chip manufacturing has change and will change i think yeah there's more like like you said you touched on this there's more and more chips being needed yep um i think it's crazy that you know but before we started rolling um you know the the gaming pc that i bought last year that's well, a little over a year old now that was i think a 12 or 14 nanometer chip right and this facility will be making five nanometer chips that's great um which is insane um, you look at how many industries require chips going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't need some boomer hopping on here and being like, well, back in my day, you didn't <laughs> need a computer to work on your car. Um, but you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you had one computer right. on your car. You had right. like an ECU at right. most. And now there's an, there, there's some sort of control unit or computer and thus chip. Mm-hmm. For so many different things. I, I know uh, one of the common uh, features on motorcycles 
is uh, on certainly on the high performance ones is an IMU, right? Which is has to deal with like the lean angle and it, mm-hmm. it, it follows all of your traject uh, your telemetries and stuff like that. That requires its own processor. Yep, yep. You know, I was, I was reading up on the uh, Intel's new generation of uh, processors, and obviously they have you know um, uh, compute units or threads mm-hmm. uh, that process uh, right. certain amount of information. But now what they're doing is they're allowing a different controller to prioritize which tasks go on the chip. So now you have <laughs> a processor on top of a processor. <laughs> so yeah. it's all built into the same chip, but the complexity of being able to manage the data and manage what tasks get through, I mean, that that's a fairly significant right. change of how um, you know computations are handled on the process. And I, that blew my mind that yeah. you know I would see some engineers like, why can't I have someone manage this work for me? <laughs> right. That, that was a great look at right. you know, being able to have high um, uh, processors or uh, you know threads that require more uh, more uh, uh, computations versus you know background tasks and prioritize those differently. So yeah, and and you, you look at like that goes on to like motherboards as well. Right. right. You know, even though you, the motherboard doesn't come with the CPU yep. on it, but motherboards still have like like you know, especially gaming motherboards. They advertise all the time about how advanced their VRMs are. Right. That's right. another chip. Yeah. <laughs> to to control where yeah. the power goes right. a- across the computer. Yeah. And so it's just like, you know, potato chips. You can't have just one. <laughs> you can never just have one. They call them no. chips for a reason. <laughs> All right, man. The last article I got was not as complex as, you know, the topics we've been talking about. It talks about automation, though. And the reason I like this, is I like to go over, you know, use cases or inspiration that, hey, you know, robotics have been around for a while, but how are people using that? Or what, how are corporations benefiting from that? Uh, and this article from Robotics Business Review goes over six um, highlights for, um, you know, if you go into automation. Uh, and it's varying levels of automation, right? So you've got machine tending, you've got conveyors, you've got, um, you know, warehouse, things like that. But the core of it is, you know, obviously they offer um, great efficiency and productivity. So, you know, being able to remove the human from the process. And the reason that comes up interesting is that, you know, the back to the prioritization discussion, when the machine is ready, the robot will be ready. So if the human is off doing other things or multitasking within that cell, if there's a downtime where the machine is ready but the human is not, that's where you run into issues. So it's not the human side of it. It's a prioritization of what the human is doing within the cell that's often a discussion. And then they go over some percentage points of you know how much uh, the potential that could be saved. And recent advancements in robotics, you know, they talk about improving safety and security. Um, and of course, if you still have your traditional larger uh, single arm robot, you're going to have fencing. And then as you break those curtains, then obviously it shuts down. And then with uh, the collaborative robots, you're seeing much more uh, safe environments, but also human to robot interaction. So that's where you get back into some of the efficiency and productivity. Uh, Reduced expenditures. So they talk about scaling up. Um, And I thought there's an interesting point where, you know, if you're running a, a, a shift and then you need to scale up, you know, you could run a night shift or a second and a third shift or add a line and things right. like that. I think if you have some level of automation, being able to go from first shift to second shift is a significantly different conversation as opposed to trying to hire a second shift and that staff that's required for it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you need humans at some point in the process, but being able to um, you know, kind of scale up uh, for future expansions, fairly interesting. Um, and it mentions a couple of other things like uh, simple ins- installation and robot multitasking. I wouldn't say installation's simple, but right. I feel like it's a little more uh, predefined, like it's straightforward. Um, and, I, and we did have a discussion of the skills required for um, implementing automation um, and how companies can either insource that or rely on an integrator, which 
it depends on the company and what they're um, doing. But uh, the idea of robots to do multitasking uh, has grown quite a bit too. Uh, and that article talks about if you have um, flexible end of arm tooling, where changing from you know one part to another, as long as it's within the same family, is streamlined a little bit. I think that was the point of the article. Uh, the other one was a greater adaptability to insourcing rate. And it's kind of tied to the multitasking. And finally, I think this is the big one that a lot of people uh, kind of miss on. They don't know about it until after they've gone through several rounds of inter- um, automation is better contract pricing. So being able to offer a different price after you've gone through this round of learning how to implement automation and if they bring in That's a, a cool. price, right? If, um, so I thought that was an interesting look of, hey, these are all the interesting things that a company can benefit. And everyone talks about the high level, but having kind of walk through those and how they affect your organization, I thought it was fairly beneficial. So that was, I thought it was a cool article. That is pretty cool. That's a good, good walkthrough. You know, so uh, as much as I support test beds, <laughs> I feel like this this article does its, uh, a good amount of due diligence to be like, yeah, you can get a test bed if you want to experiment for yourself. Yep. But this is this is how it goes yep. when it comes to implementing yep. robotics. And the nice thing about the test bed, too, is that, you know, if you want to see actual numbers, and that's what I got into having difficulty at uh, my previous company is proving your return on investment. Mm-hmm. So you can obviously go through sheets of paper calculations and figure out, okay, I can reduce my processing time, save this amount of money, or I can uh, shift uh, human labor to be part of three or four cells as opposed to one cell. So you reduce the overhead cost there. Uh, but if you have a test bed, now you have more data, you have more confidence in the data that you're generating to get your return on investment. Sure. Awesome. Steve, where can they find more info about us? I thought you were going to say that since I in, I started us. Oh, no. I, uh, I'm not prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's easy. They can find more info about us at amtonline.org slash resources. You can go there to read our tech reports, our white paper series, and uh, listen to previous episodes of the, the Tech Trends podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Bye, everybody.